Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast, brought to you today by Yetter Farm Equipment. I'm lead content editor, Brian O'Connor. On the podcast this week, we're speaking to Carl Dirks, who finished second in Pennsylvania for the National Corn Growers Association annual yield contest in the no-till, non-irrigated category. Dirks was one of several growers profiled in the No-Till Farmer special report, No-Till Corn, Pushing the Boundaries of Yield Potential, available on our website. Here's my discussion with Carl Dirks. Yeah, my name is Carl Dirks. Um, I'm associated with Walden Farview Farms. We're from Mount Joy, Pennsylvania, which is South Central Pennsylvania. Uh, we also have a seed business called Lancaster Seed Sales. So we sell corn, beans, um, we grow our own barley, wheat, we have our own brands, plus we license for a couple other companies as well. So we grow some AgriPro, some KWS, and we have a bunch of varieties of wheat that are our own that we license. So we grow seed as well as farm. Um, we used to have layered chickens, used to be part of our business, pretty major part of it about five years ago. We got out of that and we still have about 8,000 finishing hogs um, that we grow. So we have about 15,000, 16,000 finished hogs annually. Um, so we have a lot of manure to deal with. Our farm is located within the Chesapeake Bay watershed. So we are a CAFO with the amount of animals we have. So we get to deal with that as well. We have a history of high fertility with all the chickens we had. So it's something, um, you know, everyone thinks high fertility is great. It's something we, we fight actually on the other side of it. Yeah. Because we do have some pretty crazy phosphorus rates and stuff like that. If I recall correctly, you are the second place finisher for Pennsylvania for no-till? Yeah, I've had a few um, seconds. I've had a first. I think we placed first or second the last four years. Yep, we're all no-till. Uh, we've been all no-till for the uh, for about fifteen years now. Um, we were no-tilling for at least the last twenty. Um, yeah, we've been pure no-till for about fifteen. Um, we also cover every acre every year. Um, we plant a cover crop, usually just like a wheat or a barley. Um, we found that works really well for us just to cover it up so we have something there in the spring and something oh. to help keep the manure there over the winter. What does your rotation look like? Um, we're, we're a fair amount of corn beans. We have a lot of small grain. So about a quarter of our acres every year is small grain, and that's all seed production at this point. So it's split between barley and wheat, mostly wheat. Um, we've got some ground that just isn't suitable for small grain, just the location in the hills and stuff. But it is just basically corn bean, corn, corn bean, something like that. We're traditionally pretty heavy corn. Um, cause yeah. we used to grind all our own feed for our chickens. So we used to grow probably 70, 80% corn and that that's changed a little bit here in the last few years. Um, but we can typically do pretty good with corn here. Full season beans are a little harder to justify locally just cause we can get such phenomenal double crop yields behind small grain. I mean, we can do 70, 80 bushel full season beans, but on the backside of that, we can do 45 to 55 bushel double crop behind barley. So the numbers in our very specific little region work out pretty well for us. Okay. We're, we're talking about the 2021 crop. I should be clear about that because the, the 2022 crop is the only ground. Um, but what was your, what was the key to the, the high yield that you accomplished? Yeah. Last year, um, the key was we had a, we had a good amount of rain at the right time, which isn't always our case. We tend to get dry over right now, which, which we are. So we're mid pollination and the pollination. Um, and we really haven't seen significant rain in two weeks, three weeks. And, and we're unique in that way that we have ground that is very good. The water holding capacity isn't great. It, it's a, it's a plus minus there. So we barely have any tile. We don't have anything tiled. We've got limestone about two to three feet below the surface and it's natural drainage. So our ground is, it's got great fertility, 
great tests, um, but it, it dries out fairly quick. Um, and I, I think that's where the no-till part has been the biggest biggest change in our operation from 15 years ago. Our water holding capacity is, is incredible versus what it was 15 years ago. And we can maintain through, through issues like this. I mean, last year we went through a pretty significant dry spell right around now. And we still had one of the best, I think it was our best average on, on record for the farm. We had some, we had some good rains later in August, which also brought in some other issues. Um, we saw a significant amount of par spot for the first time ever. I know Midwest guys have been dealing with that for a while. That's the first touch of it we've had. Um, we always dealt with gray leaf and we get Northern corn, you know, every four or five years, we get a touch of that. But tar spot came in here and just wreaked havoc last year. Even stuff that we sprayed late, you know, mid pollination still had significant issues. Um, tar spot just came in just the lower parts of the field where it should have been the best yield got drug back. And that, that hurt us in the end. It was actually interesting in our contest field where we had that high yield. I was actually pretty disappointed. It, it should have been better than what it was because I mean, we went in there and it should have been 27% yet when we harvested it. And it was 23, 24 um, we we're going through there and the monitors, you know, it's getting three, three and a quarter. And yeah, this looks pretty decent, but it should have been higher considering what some of the averages, you know, we've been pumping from 275, 265 farm averages out, which is good considering the trees and all the stuff we deal with. And, uh, through the middle, it's like, yeah, you know, 290, 300, that's great, but it should have been more. And as we crawled out of the valley where we have the best soil and up on top of the hill, the monitor actually went up. We could have been in the 300s and i think the reasoning for that is that corn got greener up on top where it should have been drier the disease you could see the fog sit in every morning in august and that tar spot just took out the bottom of that field and that's that's been our big hurdle lately when we go corn on corn and even some of the rotated ground the disease late has been pretty rough and last year was the worst year we've ever seen okay so in other words, it sounds like you had, if I can summarize, it sounds like you had uh, the right weather at the right time, but the usual amount of, uh, and even slightly higher than average, uh, pest yeah. pressures. Okay. Yeah. All yeah. Right. And we, we've done a lot better job of kind of honing in on our fertility plan. Um, we've honestly backed stuff off pretty significantly. You know, when I started doing high yield plots and we started playing around five, six years ago, I mean, the notion is throw more nitrogen out. And it's going to grow corn. And that's not the case. I mean, we we tested year after, and I think that's one of the been one of the biggest benefits of, of playing with the high yield stuff. You know, you learn what works, but more importantly, you learn what doesn't work. Um, and, and we we have so many beneficials we get naturally from the north. So most of our ground gets a light coating hog manure every year, just to kind of keep potash levels and everything else in check. Um, and we're, we're we're testing that kind of ground. We're testing every year, every other year. Um, and, and when we kind of honed in on the fertility, we, we actually backed the nitrogen off. You know, we're stopping, I think we only had about 250, 250 pounds applied total with the manure. Um, we actually figured our last year, our applied rate versus bushel gain, the average was we had 0.75 or 0.8 pounds applied per bushel harvested on the average for the farm. Um, the plot was actually very similar to that. And, and that's impressive because, you know, we came off, you know, we've all been taught that 1.1, 1. 1, you know, one, one pound per one pound yield per bushel gain. And, and we've gotten significantly below that. And we actually plan on that. Now. Some of that is to do with our fertility. Um, I think some of it has to do with no-till. We're not really losing a whole lot of stuff right now, which I've been incredibly happy with. We, we've taken that down even further. We've been, we started using some biologicals. 
Um, we started dealing with some pivot and some other products similar to that. And we're, we're just continuing trying to pull that back down, especially with this high inputs right now. So I think, yeah, this is probably the lowest, lowest year I've ever been a part of. This current year, what actually we've actually applied. Was, was it a cost-saving measure, or was it something in the data that you saw that led you to think that this was the, the right decision to make? It was a combination. I mean, it was, yeah. and it's always been really easy to just add nitrogen. It's cheap, you know, 30 cents a pound or whatever it was, and then we're talking a dollar plus a pound now. Um, yeah. But we saw the data. I mean, we saw it year in and year out. We harvest some pretty high-yielding stuff where we shouldn't have been able to because there wasn't enough nitrogen. And, and we did it. And we thought, oh, maybe one year it was left over from the year before, but then we did it the following year. And then we did it the following year of some of our ground that is continuous corn year in and year out. Um, and that's kind of where the, the light clicked on. So, hey, maybe we can pull this back down. And, and some of that might have to do with, with our fertility levels and tradition. And we might get to a point where that starts going the other way. What have you learned about from, from doing these kinds of high yield things and it, I guess participating in the contest? Uh, what have you mm -hmm. learned about your crop uh, and land potential? Learned a lot about it. It's more about the start sometimes than the actual finish. Um, we've learned and we've learned again this year that we have to be a little more patient sometimes. We get a tendency to get a little excited and get stuff in maybe a little too wet. And our ground is very punishing on that side. Um, I think no-till is more forgiving than it used to be when we were working ground. But there still is kind of that sweet spot that we need to find year in and year out and um, that overall balance on fertility has been very important to us um you know the last generation had put manure as close to the building you could get it um and the outer line stuff didn't get it and i think that's us spreading stuff around and actually pulling pulling fertility back on certain farms has benefited us immensely um and, and cover crops have done some of that as well um you know we used to deal with a lot of crusting a lot of hard ground you know, compaction. We've eliminated a fair amount of that. Um, a lot of that is timing. A lot of that is the cover crop. A lot of that is just the no-till in general. It has suited our ground phenomenally well. And, and I'm not saying it's going to do it everywhere, but our ground set, it works unbelievably well. And it's been the most beneficial thing we've had in farming in the last 25 years, no doubt. Um, it has allowed us to do things that we didn't dream of and, and maintain yields that we didn't think were possible with the weather patterns we get. I mean, a lot of people view this area as always lush and green or in a side of the county where we get skipped on that in a bit of a valley. Um, and we, we tend to skip a lot of rain and that has maintained, that has helped us maintain yields consider, you know, unbelievably well for what we've been through. So, What's the, now you talk about the sweet spot. Is that, you think that sweet spot varies? Farm to farm, or is that something that there, there's a set of practices that they all share? Like, and I guess, are there anything specifically that you have learned that could be takeaways for other farms? Yeah, it, it goes farm to farm depending on the soil type. And we've got we've got certain soils that you can go plain a little wet and you're okay. You've got you know heavier clays and some of our bottom ground. You better stay out of it while it, it is cold and wet. Um, this year was a bit of a blip on the map. I mean, we had some cold weather early. We've got some corn out and I've got some other people, some customers corn out that was in early that was cold, shouldn't look great, it does look good. We've got some stuff put in when it warmed up that was still too wet. Um, and we had some issues with it. And we had some issues with cover crop that got too big because of the spring we had. We couldn't get stuff killed. We couldn't, 
we couldn't get in when we wanted to. Um, that was a really rough balancing act. We, we learned we should have had maybe another week of patients. But that sweet spot changes year to year for us. I mean, we, we have years where we average April 15th planning. We have years where we average May 15th planning like this year. And, and our, our vary, we vary considerably every year. But waiting till our soil dries out has probably one, been one of the toughest lessons we've learned with no-till versus, you know, you used to go work it and you just work it one more time and, hey, you're fine, let's go. Um, that's not the case anymore. Having a little bit of patience has done us very well. And controlling our cover crop when we should. We've learned locally that if we don't get it killed early, we're going to have issues. We don't, we've tried planting green in the past. Personally, for us, it doesn't work with some other issues. Um, one of our biggest issues, I can't let anything get anywhere close to head because I can't have carryover seed for a small grain crop because we need to maintain purity. Um, so that's been an interesting one for us. Uh, what's your process on figuring out what to try next? Ooh, what to try next. Got a lot of friends in the industry um, that I talk to. I've got a lot of friends that are out of the area that we talk to, which, and I mean, I realized that talking to other farmers has, has been probably the most beneficial part. You know, early on, I attended a lot of NOCO conferences when we were really learning about it, and we got a lot of benefits from that. You know, I've learned from the, the Palmers, and even I remember 12, 15 years ago, like Hula. Everyone thinks he's just this high-end yield producing guy. He's got some really interesting no-till stuff. We talked like 15 years ago. I remember we were in, I think it was Indianapolis. And he, you know, we're sitting there and this guy's talking about putting seed wheat behind 300 bushel corn socks. And like, this guy's crazy. Um, <laughs> and he made it work and he does a really good job of it. And it's impressive. And um, and now even more, like I have a fairly large customer base with all the seed stuff we do. Um, you know, we're, we're talking to these guys all throughout the year and watching different management practices from your low-end guys to your high-input guys and, and watching everything that they do and, and pulling little bits and pieces out from everybody it is very interesting. And I think as farmers, we get a little uptight about a lot of that. You know, we're like, ah, oh, we don't want to share and go with the competition, et cetera, et cetera. And I have that too. But it, it's interesting learning from all your from all your peers and your friends and customers in the industry and just pulling little bits and pieces because we are in a county and in a state that our ground varies drastically from one end to the other. And we have a completely different soil type on the western side of this county than the eastern, I mean, the southern end. Um, and watching them farm versus how we farm versus how guys in the north farm in the red mud, it, it really varies. And pulling a little bit from every one of those has, has been good. And I think, too, one of the things I'll say is. I got caught up in making it a little too complicated and I pulled some of that back. Simplicity to a certain degree does help in all this. We are very fortunate where fertility usually isn't our issue and we can go apply nitrogen and manure and we don't have to do anything else. It's pretty <laughs> great. Um, makes our lives easy. There's some complications with that because because of our high costs and then some of our other stuff, we, we end up tying up certain nutrients. So finding that balancing act of applying them when needed has been a little finicky. We haven't figured that out yet. I mean, that's still a learning curve for us. Um, balancing that fertility has it's been, been a big curve that we're still getting hold of. Um, but yeah, learning from peers has been the number one, number one by far. Just because everyone's got a different idea and none of them are, they're not all wrong. I mean, some are, but there's a lot of right in there. It's just a matter of what you can pull from those guys. Kind of what to keep and what to to leave, basically, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, that comes from planner attachments, too. Like, 
we build our own. I mean, we, a couple, we've tried, you know, everyone was all colders 15 years ago. We went away from colders. We thought they were bad. And then we figured out in our ground, colders are the greatest thing in the world. They work. Um, but they can't be unit mounted. They got to be frame mounted. So we, we got custom built frame mounted colders. And we ended up building our own frames for the cleaners on front for the planner we had. And I think I built, I don't know, I got 20, 25 planners out there for people I know that we work with the local or local dealership. Um, we actually built parts for now to because they they are adapted better to our climate um, that no one else builds for us. So we had to go out and build it ourselves. Um, stuff like that, I mean, has been has been part of the journey too. Kind of understanding that we are a unique area. And I think every area is unique. You can't just lump them all into one. We're gonna deal with far different issues that you know a guy in the Midwest is gonna deal with. Um, but going through all those steps and modifying little things every year. And we used to modify big things every year and the jumps were too big. You know, little steps or you know, change row here, do a half a planter pass here, something else has been big for us. And that's how we've learned the most. We do. I will say part of me too is we, we do a lot of a lot of trials, an insane amount of trials. You know, we're growing 600 acres of corn a year, and I don't have a field without trial. Um, and it gets comp. I mean, we do a lot of you know variety trials as far as our seed corn, and you know we do a lot of side by sides. Um, we do a tremendous amount of variable rate trials. We've done that for years. We've figured out we've been honing in on that. We're planting all our corn variable rate at this point. Um, we're starting to look at variable rate fertility trials, looking at biological versus synthetic nitrogen trials. We've got fungicide trials. Um, oof, we've, we've got starter trials. I mean, starter hasn't been a big thing around here, but we're starting to look at that again. So we were looking at everything every year and, and making little adjustments along the way. And you know, a couple of planter passes or a couple of sprayer passes here and there, we can learn a lot um, for us and where the paybacks are on it. In the last three years, what did you most push the envelope on? What are you, what are you looking at for the, the biggest changes? Last three years. <laughs> Honing in on that nitrogen rate has probably been number one, figuring that out. Um, you know, we switched everything to variable rate. That was a process. You know, we collected data for years to figure that out. And we kind of looked at different programs. Um, and that has helped. I mean, it's not a lot. I mean, it's six, seven bushels. But that's six, seven bushel we didn't have before. Right. Um, and then fungicide and plant health. Uh, we grow way too much corn around here and everyone else does too. And, and that has been, fungicides have been our, probably our biggest gains. I mean, last year we were seeing 30 bushel corn on corn. We were seeing 15 rotated. We had never seen that before. Um, and that's a Hail Mary sometimes. You know, you look at our fields now, we're clean. Um, we should be spraying right now. We are. Um, the problem is, you know, stuff looks too clean in three weeks. It can look very, very different when it's too late. But yeah, I'd say those three, like honing in nitrogen, um, plant population, and um, and fungicide. And properly placed corn too. I mean, that's I don't I do that so much with the business side of things. I don't really think about it anymore. Um, but that has been you can make the biggest difference there if you have the right guy where you do your own research. And that's what I recommend to guys. If you don't have a guy you trust to recommend where to put stuff, you need to figure that out on your own. Because guessing on that 
can cost you more than anything else. You know, we've seen some crazy swings, 30, 40, 50 bushel hybrid to hybrid, and you know, that shouldn't have been there. You know, that that was a bad that was a bad recommendation. And that, that you can have one of them, but when you have four or five of them on a farm, you have some pretty good issues. We'll get back to my discussion with no-tiller Carl Dirks in a moment. First, I want to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment. Yetter Farm Equipment is your answer for success in the face of ever-changing production agriculture challenges. Yetter offers a full lineup of planter attachments designed to perform in varying planting conditions. Yetter products maximize your inputs, save you time, and deliver return on your investment. Visit them at yetterco.com. And now, back to my conversation with Carl. You talked a little bit about custom making your own equipment. Um, what other uh, what other equipment changes or setups have you tried? And, and I guess I'm looking particularly in the context of the 2021 crop. Uh, was there anything you tried differently or that was a little bit outside the unusual for you? No, I'd say that one, we were about the same. Um, that was the first year we had put a yield plot field with, with, with variable rate. We always just straight seeded it, figuring we can just feed it so hard we don't care about um, to vary the population. We did VRT that one. I may have stepped it up a little bit, um, but we did variable rate that one. But now our planning and setup and equipment has been pretty consistent the last three, four years here. We, we kind of found our sweet spot and really haven't changed much. It's been really good. The only, yeah, going forward, our, our setup now is we put starter back on the planter. We were just, we just did that nitrogen out the back to the side. Um, and that was for the purpose of mainly putting biologicals down. We're running mostly water to carry it. Um, but trying to balance this fertility out and add some different forms of nitrogen from what we're looking at here coming up. Got it. So more, more on the fertility element, less maybe on the equipment variability. Um, you feel yeah, like you've got that kind of dialed in? Yeah. Okay. Um, have you tried anything in the past or recently that was a complete and utter failure? And why? Complete and utter failure. Late fertility, foliar application of some nutrients. Um, <clears throat> we spent a lot of money on some pretty expensive stuff one year. And we didn't get nothing out of it. <laughs> Our yield check trials were crap. We had 80, 90 bucks an acre thrown at this stuff, and it did absolutely nothing for us. Yeah. Um, same product on a friend of mine's farm gave him unbelievable return. Yeah. Um, but again, that's balancing fertility one farm to another. And I've got ground where it probably would have made a crazy difference, but ground here, no. So yeah, we've, we've done that. That's been a, that's a sore subject for a little bit. Um, we thought we could really boost stuff. We bought a dry applicator. It was a vegetable market tool. Actually, like the old John Deere planter boxes where the dry fertilizer would come out. We bought a four row version of that so we could spoon feed corn when it was like V6. Um, we thought we could get a boost from dry fertilizer in season. We ain't got spot out of it. <laughs> I have no problem admitting that. That was an under failure. I got a pretty good equipment investment in that one because I was convinced in my head this is going to be the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> they did nothing. Um, <laughs> check strips were just garbage. No, well, I, I can tell you about a Pontiac car that I bought one time. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
We did check for two years in a row and get nothing out of it. Um, cool idea. Didn't work. And no problem admitting that. Um, fertility has been some of our biggest bomb. Um, just thinking, hey, if we put one more thing on or getting something like that, we can just go nuts. And it hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we're, we're still, and then we're going to do it again. I guarantee it. We'll come up with something that we're, I think is the greatest thing that will fail. Um, but I, and that's where I, I really caution farmers is don't always jump on the next bandwagon. Don't always believe what your fertilizer or your corn seed salesman or someone tries to sell you because it's probably half true. It might work somewhere. It might not work on your farm. And the only person that can really figure that out is you. Um, and that's that's been a hard lesson to learn. I mean, I figured that out now, you know, 15 years into my farming career. And when I was 20, man, you could tell me anything. I was going to try it and buy it. And yeah, that corn looked really good. Um, and, you know, even then, that was a hard term for me because we, we got into the biological market now. You know, it's something we're dealing with. Um, and that was a really hard pill to swallow because I've been burned so many times. And then we found something we believed in, and then we're we're looking at it, and we'll be honest about it. We'll do third party a lot of research and stuff like that. Um, and that's it's a it's a tough one on both sides because we've been burned and we've had we've had successes. Um, but yeah, it's, there's a lot of stuff on the market that might be good for somebody, but it might not work for you. And that might have to do with your climate or your soil type or rainfall, whatever. Those are our biggest failures. Are definitely fertility. Uh, what year specifically did you get into no-till, and uh, how did you get into it? And how did you learn the systems? Uh, how did you learn the system? I mean, is this something that was handed down to you, or did you make the switch yourself? Yeah, to a certain degree. So, um, I'm somewhat unique farmer as I am, first generation technically, but I work with a family that's fourth or fifth generation. They've owned their home farm for 125 years. I think. Um, so I work with uh, a family, and it's it's an interesting setup because I work for the father, um, and his son, which is about five years younger than me, has come back into the business, and we work together. We own one farm together. I have my business. They have their business. And we all kind of work together. So my farming career with them started when I was about 20, um, and that was my real first introduction in no-till. Um, I'd seen some in the West. I had worked in Western Kansas for about two years in the dry plains. Um, and they, they tinkered with no-till out there, certain, certain parts. You know, we did a lot of corn, a lot of wheat no-till. Um, so I had gotten the concept there, and it was pretty neat. Because um, that where I came from before, it was just solid work ground. I mean, we just worked the snot and everything when we were younger. And when I came here, we were in a transition phase from full working ground to no-till. And I remember the first year I worked here, they were doing, I'd say, probably 75% no-till for about oh, four or five years. And the first year I worked here was the year, like, we got, like, 6 or $7 corn back in, like, 05, 06, maybe, 06. And I remember we, the first year I was here, we were like, you know what? He's like, I don't, I don't trust no-till. We're just going to go work the snot out of that stuff. We drug the chisel plow, we drug the disc out, we drug the cultivator out. And I was 20, I like driving equipment. This is the greatest day of my life. And we were just gonna go work out all spring. Um, and we got dry. And man, did we get fun. It was it was bad. Um, and that was the last year we really worked a significant amount of dirt. Um, after that, we got into no-till. And that's when kind of my love of cropping kind of stepped over my love of equipment. 
Um, you know, as I followed the year through, and I started to get making some of those decisions on planning and harvest and everything else, it became a bit of a competition within myself. And we, we watched the neighbors, and the neighbors had good success. Mm, some great crops. So we started making small adjustments, you know, adjustments to the planter and, and buying a new sprayer and better weed control. And um, we started looking, you know, looking at hybrid placement a little more. Um, and that's about the time we also started looking at cover crops. You know, we are somewhat hilly, not crazy, but our ground is mostly highly erodible. Um, and you're like, hey, we got gutters and she has some more waterways and stuff like that. And we started started putting cover crop down. We got a bigger drill. So we, we had the ability to cover crop all the acres in a hurry. Then we, we, we made, bought a new corn plant. We made some adjustments to that. And with that one, we learned what didn't work. And we removed a couple things and we had tremendous issues for a few years. Got rid of that one, got another one. Um, built some attachments for that that worked a lot better. Um, and then we, we, you know, we went away from Couple of years and we had that one planter too. We were putting way too much fertilizer up front and we were losing it throughout the year. And we we made some adjustments and we got a new sprayer. We started side dressing a lot more. Um, you know, traditionally around here, 20 years ago, there was a pretty good amount of anhydrous knife in there. Um, locally, anhydrous does not exist. It's, it's gone. Um, we really haven't seen any significant use in probably 10 years now. Um, if I might ask, what what's the cause there? Is is it? I, I know some guys won't use it because they say it's the most harmful chemical that you can put on for biology. Basically, you're telling uh, infrastructure mostly. Okay, it just doesn't. There was basically no infrastructure out here, um, and there was no new investment in it. The other stuff for us is just too easy to use. Um, but yeah, there's I don't know of any high anhydrous. Anywhere close to eating it, I'm in Maryland on the shore. There's nothing, unless I don't know all of it, but we're pretty much, we're almost all liquid at this point, maybe a little bit of dry in there. Um, but yeah, it was more of an infrastructure thing, such a pain to deal with. And the working of ground, kind of, as, as that went away, it wasn't needed. That's kind of the reason why it's kind of that. Um, what are you going to try in next? 2023, 2024, any any big plans or, or things you're looking at? Biologicals, a more of that, kind of figuring that fertility question out. Um, Equipment-wise, uh, looking at, not really. I mean, we're pretty, our equipment is pretty much flatlined for the last little bit. Um, we'll do some, we're, we're going to keep honing in on that variable rate part. Um, Anybody else? No, we're pretty content at that point. I don't, I don't really see any major, major changes coming to the equipment side of things. We have figured out what works for our area, and I am pretty hard to change from that now. I'm not saying we shouldn't, um, but we've we've really gotten pretty good with that. Um, fungicide use, looking at that a little more. You know, we're doing a lot, and that's a little scary to me. Because we are doing so much to maintain a crop. What other ways can we kind of change that? Um, and I don't know if those answers are here yet. Um, I hope they're coming because we're using a lot of fungicide right now. <laughs> well, and the other thing too, I've heard now that there's a fungicide resistance out there that's starting to creep in in some places. So 
Um, yeah, I've heard it. I haven't seen it personally yet, but I mean, we got corn and you know, corn and wheat are both getting two shots a year, uh, plus whatever your seed treatments and stuff are. Soybeans, we've still avoided that to date. And we tried it years ago, didn't get much of a response, and we've been pretty good ever since. We've been fortunate on that front. But yeah, it's um, I'd say fertility is where we're we're really honing in on stuff. Um, equipment we have a pretty good handle on it right now. Currently, there's some planner upgrades I'd like to make. Um, now I think we'll get to the point where we uh, I'd like variable down pressure. Like we're we're still just one static setting. Um, I'd like to get to the point that's hydraulically controlled. You know, technology's out there. We just haven't made the investment yet. Um, for the side of the farm, it's it's a bit of a tough one to swallow, but we're getting there. Sprayer wise, probably going to variable rate fertility with that thing. It's coming. We haven't got there yet. I haven't found a good program I like that justifies where stuff goes. And I think it's some of that data collection as well, just continuing collecting all that data we can to pull that back. Um, what do you do that's unique from other no-tillers, I guess, especially in your area, um, like relates to planting seeds, sampling, tissue, soil, you mentioned biologicals. Um, do you do use wide drops? Like, What are some techniques that you apply that kind of make you stand out a little bit? We do a lot of tassel application of fungicides. Mostly because we have a sprayer that's capable of doing it, and not a lot of people do. We adapted that like 10 years ago, and we've, we've had very good luck with that. We do a little bit of custom work with it for neighbors. What else makes us unique? It's a good question. We all kind of farm the same, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been very fortunate and blessed that we do have big enough equipment to get stuff done in a really big hurry. Yeah. You know, a lot, you know, a lot like some of the guys in the US, we get done in a week with most of our stuff. Um, we are over equipped. I have no problem admitting that. I mean, we have built ourselves to the point where we can do the equipment side of things in a really big hurry. Um, and not not all that was crop based either, right? It was more time management to do the other side of the business. Um, because of where we live and, and our land situation, um, Farming is not that great of a payback. So we have all these side businesses to keep the farm going. Um, so our, our time priority has, you know, in all honesty, is really usually in the animals or the, or the seed business or something like that. And farming, a lot of times, gets chucked to the side. But the faster we can get it done is, is a benefit to us in a couple of different ways. You know, some of it so we can actually get other work done or, or be home or, you know, get in between those weather patterns that keep us out. You know, because we, we deal with some pretty... Some of the nation's highest land prices are right here, um, and that's a tough one to deal with. So, um, you mentioned biologicals. Um, what mm-hmm. are you? Uh, you mentioned pivot in particular. Are there any others mm-hmm. that you're trying? Do, do you care to give a list of what and how much you use? Yeah, so pivot's been the number one. Uh, I'll fully admit I sell it. <laughs> that's a pretty easy one to pick for me. Um, I sell it because I believe in it. I have some guys that used it. Good luck with it. Um, some of the infield testing we've done this year looks phenomenal. Um, I the, the thing that excites me about it is it's companies like this. And as much as we all hate these high nitrogen prices and fuel prices, they suck. Don't get me wrong. Um, I'm as pissed off as the next guy. It is going to help us in the long run, I believe. It, it makes us all better managers. You know, when we get stuff like this, we, you know, some guys are going to cut corners, but a lot of guys are going to figure out, okay, where's that ROI? So as much as nitrogen prices suck, um, they, they do make us better managers in the end. Mm-hmm. I, I really, truly do believe that. 
and I and I'm not, you know, I'm not an environmentalist. I'm not I'm not going to go hug a tree or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do I do believe that the goal is to leave farming better than I found it. You know, no-till has been one of those things, and I, I think the next step really for all of us is is the fertility. You know, as we are especially here being uh, scrutinized in the Chesapeake Bay. And I, I do believe a lot of that is we're getting blamed for stuff that, you know, urban sprawling is much more to blame than what a farmer is. Mm. Um, it's still something we need to deal with um, and we are accountable for. And I think as, as we find replacements for synthetic nitrogen, it, it can be beneficial in a lot of different ways. You know, it just cost, you know, if we can get away from the cost of synthetic, um, it'd be great infrastructure. I don't know a farmer that likes to haul liquid nitrogen or dry fertilizer. It is miserable mm. in all all shapes, ways, and forms. Um, it's miserable on equipment. It's sticky. It's not fun. It's corrosive. If I could eliminate that tomorrow from my operation, I'd be smiling ear to ear. <laughs> it sucks. And you you look at companies like a Pivot or or some other ones that I won't, you know, that I can't name right off the top of my head. But if we can develop the technology to you know, reduce or possibly even eliminate synthetic nitrogen, it's a win-win for everybody. Right. Um, as a farmer, we we look better as a farming community. We've done something to help the environment. Um, and we get a lot of bad press at this point for greenhouse gas emissions, carbon, everything. Um, a lot of that is very undeserved. Um, and we've been the scapegoat just because we're easy to look at. You know, it's it's not the mom sitting at Starbucks in line for 20 minutes to get her coffee. It's some guy growing your food. It's, right. He's the jerk. And I've got a big problem with that. Um, I'm not a real vocal one. I'm not the guy getting on social media and talking about it. But I, I think leading by action is, is also important. Um, but the biological thing, I, I think that's where we can really change the way we farm um, and how agriculture is viewed as well. Um, and I'm hoping that this is the next step and that this pushes us over to the next kind of the next step of things. And, and genetic modifications are going to be huge, too. Um, I know that's mm-hmm. scrutinized a lot, but you look at it and you talk to some of the sciences, scientists and the experts. Um, there's a lot of modifications we can do within the plant that are going to help us be more efficient with nitrogen and be more pest resistant and use less pesticides and all that stuff that's going to be huge. Um, and a lot of that's just, it's all going to come from science. And I think being on the cutting edge and being willing to try a couple new things every year is, is very important for everyone's operation. And like I said, use it on a small percentage. Don't, don't just blanket the whole farm, right. figure out what it works for you before you get there. Um, how do you select your hybrids? Ooh, um, we so I would imagine with, you've got an inside track on this because you deal seeds too. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we deal with three out of the four main genetic suppliers in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, we deal with a lot of stuff. Um, we do a lot of kind of, we look at recommendations from the agronomists and say, Hey, these are the 20 things we think that are going to work. So we go test plot at the first year and you know, we probably take five of them home a year. You know, we're getting, we're going to cut that down by a quarter. Um, once we get to that point, you know, we're going to throw some test bags around and say, Hey, this is, this is the next thing. Let's try it for us. Personally, we do a lot of side-by-sides um, and how that works is we have a 16 row planter. We are harvesting with an eight row corn head and we split that planter everywhere we can. Um, 
and we do that with our own stuff. We do with that with competitors because I believe you need to be as you need to know as much about your competition as you know about yourself. Um, I forget what my total hybrid count was. I think we've got 30, 35 hybrids on the farm this year. Wow. Um, some of them only have a percentage or two of the farm, but they're there. Um, a lot of test plots. Um, kind of looking at lineage too. Like you kind of know a hybrid's going to be yay or nay before you really even put it in the field. Sometimes um, getting to know the agronomists that are in charge of all this stuff is important for us. Um, and looking not only at yield for us, but stress tolerance is, is our bigger factor Yeah, for us. You know, is this thing going to handle stress? Because we, we've got a hybrid or two that I'll openly admit could be the best thing two out of five years. And it could be the worst thing three out of five. Um, and that's that's where we we are very cautious. Because um, I have I've learned one hybrid placement that's wrong will get you kicked off of a farm. Um, and making sound decisions has been has been pretty big yeah Um, the fact that we we touch everything before we ever ship it out you know there's there's nothing i'm going to sell you that i probably haven't grown or understand Mm -hmm. or seen on another farm that i really trust Um, so just continual testing has been huge for us how many acres are in the high yield uh, management program versus other acres that are in the regular? Like, I, I think, and, and this question is important because, right, a lot of people, when they look at the NCGA results, they have in, in their mind of, well, yeah, you can get 300, 200 acres of corn if you just plant one acre. They have minimums and things like that, but I, you know, I just wanted to give a, get, if you could give an idea of like, what, where do you keep your high yield stuff versus, you know, what are the acres for the other things? 50 percent of our acres are probably in that high yield kind of management style okay where we push it a little harder um the ground we know is capable of those yields um and then the other 50 percent is ground that we know has a ceiling wow and then we back off a little bit we kind of understand those acres um and there's some years i think the ceiling is lower than what it is <laughs> or yeah. higher or vice versa um See, I'd say we're probably a 50-50 blend. Okay. We know our ground is pretty good. And I don't consider any of our ground exceptional by any right. means. Um, I've got a lot of customers and a lot of friends with far better dirt than what we farm. <laughs> um, and I have no problem admitting that. And some of it's some of it's luck, some of it's good management. Um, yeah, it's but there is definitely better ground than what we than what we handle. And I'm sure every farmer is going to say that. There is no farmer that won't say that. So, Got it. Okay, one last question uh, that's substantive, yep. and then another question after that that's kind of record-keeping. Um, do you have any um, – sorry, what micronutrients are you using, and, and when and how are you using them? I've heard uh, boron is really big for corn. Like, people are, are talking that up. I don't know. Um, but if you could just talk a little bit about your experience, is this something that you can talk about? Yeah, yeah, we, we've, oh, okay. chucked, we've chucked boron, we've chucked other stuff around in small grain and corn. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'll be blatantly honest, we haven't had much of a kickback. Mm. Um, that is because of our manure. I mean, everything kind of falls back to that. It's a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Um, but if you go analyze that manure, it's got everything you can imagine in it. Um, and that has been... Yeah, we we haven't 
we almost don't apply any micros, and when we do, it's been some of our least profitable decisions. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, I, I don't, and I don't think that's the case for most farmers. Um, it's just what we have to deal with here. We we get a lot of benefits from the manure. I will yeah. say the biggest fertility one of the, and I haven't really touched on this at all. One of the biggest fertility things we've seen in the last decade has been sulfur. Yeah. Yeah. As we lost, you know, the pollution side, the acid rain, all that stuff, we started to see the yelling of corn, and where we'd see it was our manure skippers. Um, that is probably big. One of our biggest paybacks, um, fertility-wise, adding kind of the right amount of sulfur. Yeah, um, and trying to figure out where that is. That's been pretty big for us because we didn't used to use hardly any, and now we use tons. <laughs> yeah, we used to get for for free from the coal plants. <laughs> I it was so cheap before. <laughs> yeah, dang, took all the fuel. So, okay, and you might have mentioned it in the in your introduction. Uh, what? How many acres do you have again? Total, we farm. Yeah, yeah, we farm right around a thousand. That's it for this week's episode. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Farm Equipment, one more time for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you liked today's discussion, the full take on Carl Dirks' approach to high-yielding no-till corn is available on our website as part of the No-Till Corn Pushing the Boundaries of Yield Potential special report. It's all about no-tillers who participate in and win the NCGA Annual Yield Contest. Just visit our store tab for a description and to consider purchase. A link can also be found on this episode's webpage. More podcasts about no-till farming are available over at www.no-tillfarmer.com slash podcasts. A transcript of this episode will be available there shortly. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at B-O-C-O-N-N-O-R at LessiterMedia.com or call me at 262-777-2413. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Facebook or Twitter. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm lead content editor Brian O'Connor. Thanks for listening, and keep it no-till. No-till.